0: we we'll are reading from John first, chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in
1: God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you on this Christmas Eve, may we come as those who desire to have their eyes open, the eyes of our hearts open to behold the light of heaven and to see in the coming of that light a love that is vastly beyond all we could hope or imagine. May our hearts be changed by an encounter with your heart this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On a wind- and rain-swept island in the North Atlantic, sometimes referred to as England, a large and jolly 300-pound man sits down at his desk as Christmas Day approaches. He sits down to compose a defense of Christmas in response to the American founder of the Church of Christian Science, uh, the cult founder, Mary Baker Eddy, has published a statement advocating against Christmas and against the giving of gifts, in which she said she did not give presents in a gross, sensuous way terrestrial sense, but instead she sat still and thought about truth and purity till all her friends were much better for it. The large man sitting at his desk characteristically laughs and strokes his mustache because the large man on that windswept island is, of course, G.K. Chesterton, and it's his business as a column writer for the Daily News to respond to such things with a keen wit and good humor. And respond, he does. When Mary Baker Eddy says that instead of giving physical Christmas gifts, she sits still and thinks of truth and purity, Chesterton responds by saying, Now I do not say that Miss Eddy's plan is either superstitious or impossible, and no doubt it has an economic charm. I say it is unchristian. In the same solid and prosaic sense that playing a tune backwards is unmusical. Or saying ain't is ungrammatical. I do not know if there are any scriptural texts or church councils that condemns Miss Eddie's theory of Christmas presents. But Christianity condemns it. As soldiering condemns running away. The idea of embodying goodwill, that is Of putting it into a body is the huge and primal idea of the incarnation. A gift of God that can be seen and touched is the whole point. Christ himself was a Christmas present. Chesterton points out that Christ himself was a physical gift of love. An incarnate gift of God's love that human hands could hold and touch. It's consistent with God's very physical and original Christmas gift that we now give tangible gifts to one another, sometimes lavish gifts, sometimes even traveling great distances to give those gifts. Otherwise, you could hardly call the original wise men wise, for traveling so very far Bearing very physical gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, if instead they'd been better off sitting still and thinking of truth, purity, and love alongside Mary Baker Eddy, they wouldn't have been wise. Because, but thinking about love isn't the same as loving. Love is more than mere thought, love acts, love goes, love gives. Love gives often in very physical, tangible ways. Now, it may not be exactly like a certain TV sitcom boss puts it. Michael Scott says to his employees that Christmas presents are there to, as a way to say, Hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. We, we all know that's a flawed way of thinking, but in a strange twist, a clueless boss like Michael Scott is closer to the kingdom than a sagely religious leader like Mary Baker Eddy. Physical gifts do communicate worth in a way. At Christmas, God says to the world, I love you and you can measure my love by this. By the lavishness of my gift. We are told to do exactly that in one of the most well-known and well-beloved verses in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want you to see five things in John chapter 3 this Christmas Eve. And the first one is this. I want you to see God's gift of love. God's gift of love, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We give physical gifts to those we love at Christmas. And Chesterton was right in saying that this practice is consistent with the heart of Christianity. It's consistent both with our theology as well as with the state of our soul responding to God's great gift. God's lavishness toward us begets our lavishness towards others. The giving of Christmas gifts flows from the heart of John 3.16. For God so loved that he gave. And what a gift he gave. God's gift of love was the greatest, most lavish gift imaginable. He gave himself. God himself came to us in physical form. One that Mary and Joseph could cradle in their arms. We see God's gift of love on display first in the incarnation itself. The most tangible of gifts requiring the eternal Son of God... Take, to take on a physical body in the same way we all did, going through the full process of being knit together within our mothers. The immortal word of God becomes flesh by entering into a mortal's womb, being born in poverty, being reared in a world of blood, sweat, and tears. So that by his blood, sweat, and tears, he might show us God's love. We see God's gift of love on display first in the incarnation itself, but also in the crucifixion. The crucifixion, which is the culmination of God's giving of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son both to be begotten physically in the world but also to perish physically for the world. Both the manger and the cross are testimonies, are tangible testimonies of God's love. I love you this much, this much trouble's worth. I love you this much humiliation's worth. I love you this many injustices worth. Here are the links I'm willing to go in order to show you my love. In love, I'm willing to come myself and take on your punishment so that you might not perish but have everlasting life. As parents, at Christmas, we give gifts to our children as physical, tangible displays of our love. But what greater display of a parent's love could there be than this? Our Heavenly Father gives His only begotten Son for us. He gives His Son to an impoverished world, first at Bethlehem, and then to the pains of death at Calvary. This is why John writes in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's self-giving love ought to motivate the same kind of love in us. God's self-giving love sends his son out on a mission. And that's what we see in verse 17. Look at verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but, here's the mission, that the world might be saved through him. We see our second heading in verse 17. Jesus' mission of love. Jesus' mission of love. It's important to understand that God the Father did not send the Son of God on a mission of love At a point in time when we deserved it. Quite the opposite. God sent his son to those who deserved judgment. We were rebels against heaven's king. Fist in his face. No, we will not have it your way. We will have it our way. We were rebels. And we were prodigals. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? A son comes to his father, says, Father, give me my inheritance now, essentially saying to the father, I wish you were dead already. Give it to me now. The man goes, he receives his inheritance, he goes off to a far country, and there he squanders it on loose living, Jesus says. All that goes away, and in the end, he's left working in a pigsty, longing to eat the food That he's giving the pigs. But in that pigsty, he comes to his senses and says, My father's servants live better. They eat better than this. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Take me back as one of your hired men. And as he journeys home, rehearsing that speech to himself, the father sees him coming. And in love, the father abandons all dignity. He runs to his son. He embraces him. Doesn't allow him to get the speech out of his mouth. He embraces him. Says, come, put a ring on his finger. Put a robe on his back. Kill the fatted calf. For my son who was dead is now alive. He was lost, but he has been found. We call it the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus called it the story of the two brothers. Because there's a second brother in the story. The older brother in Jesus' story is the picture of self-righteous judgmentalism. He calls the younger brother that son of yours, not that brother of mine. He refuses to go into the party because he's always obeyed. I've always done what is right. What? But did he? What should the elder brother have done? He should have done verse 17. Not judging but being sent into the world that he might save the younger brother. In love, the elder brother should have said, Here I am, Father. Send me. Send me into the world to pursue my brother. I will bring my lost brother back home, though it cost me everything. Though it cost me my very life. I will save my brother and bring him home again. This is exactly what verse 17 says Jesus has done. Jesus is the true and greater elder brother who willingly is sent on a mission of love, not to judge us, but to save us. This mission began at his birth as it was announced to shepherds sleeping rough in the field. This is why he is here. He is here to save us. This mission continued as Jesus grew and started teaching the people. This is why the prodigals were flocking to him and why many self-righteous religious people began to hate him. Jesus wasn't like the rule-keeping elder brother. He was a better elder brother, one who came on a mission of love, eating and drinking with sinners, eating and drinking with prodigals, pursuing the prodigals to whatever pig pen they were wallowing in. Part of Christmas, therefore, involves the glad acknowledgement that we've been found. We were in the pigsty, and our elder brother pursued us and pulled us out. We freely acknowledge that we were prodigals, or even worse, we were the self-righteous Pharisees when God sent his son on a mission of love to bring us to our senses and to bring us back home, to bring us into the party. At Christmas, we give gifts to celebrate this reality. We've been found. We've been rescued. We've returned to the Father. Christmas is a come kill the fatted calf, rejoice and be glad kind of moment, isn't it? That's what Christmas is. Christmas means that our elder brother has entered into our mess, In order to bring us back home, in order to usher us in to the Father's feast, in order to return us to the Father's loving embrace. This welcome home is only possible because our elder brother has paid our debts and satisfied justice for us. And that's what we see in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here's our third heading, faith's appeal of love, faith's appeal of love. Picture, our elder brother has come to us, he's pulled us out of the pigsty, but that's not all. We've racked up quite a debt in this town. Through our profligate ways. We've even committed a few crimes to finance our addictions. Before we can leave town for home, we must first have our day in court. Justice must be paid. Either we can say on that day of judgment, This is my elder brother. He stands here for me, offering to pay my debts in full. Or trying to stand on our own feet, we can say, I don't know him. I don't know who this man is. I don't know his name. We can refuse to acknowledge our elder brother on our day in court. In that case, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. We're guilty. And if we want to acknowledge our brother's help, we'll have to pay for our crimes and our debts ourselves. In that case, there will be no going home for us. No feast, no fatted calf, no father's welcome. Here in the city of destruction, we will stay. If we try to be our own saviors, if we try to put faith in ourselves, then we are condemned already, John says. Already. But if we acknowledge our elder brother, If we believe that he will stand in our stead, that he is willing and able to pay our debt, then we will not be condemned. Faith appeals the judgment against us and rests its appeal on our elder brother, that he has come on a mission of love to save us. Christmas comes each year as a reminder that our judgment has been appealed. We were guilty, yes. We owed a debt we could never repay, yes. But Christmas says our appeal was heard. Love incarnate approached the bench and pled on our behalf. Without faith in this incarnate love, we stand as those judged and condemned already, John says. But through faith in God's gift of love, we are not judged. For justice itself has already been fully satisfied by the one who loved us before we fell. And make no mistake, we had fallen. We had fallen hard. That's the fourth thing I want you to see. Man's misplaced love. Man's misplaced love in verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. While God's love is as pure and swift as sunlight, our love is often bent and rotten like an old banana. Bent, rotten. Our love is often bent toward all the wrong things. We are bent toward loving many of the things we should hate and hating many of the things we should love. If you doubt that, watching one hour of reality TV will probably cure you of all your doubts. Both by the fact of how people act on reality TV. It's not scripted. They're just being themselves by the fact of how people act and by the fact that you're still watching it. You're eating it up. Men naturally love the darkness, and reality TV is part of the proof. (laughs) Now, imagine again that you're in the story of the prodigal son. You've wasted all that you were given, and now you are wallowing in that pigsty. But unexpectedly, your elder brother stands over you, offering you his hand. Your heart should love this sudden inbreaking of light into your dark situation. But you don't. You hate it. You hate it that he is here. You're upset that he has found you, that all your sin and all your shame is exposed before his eyes. Instead of taking the hand offered you in love, you spit on it. Get out of here, brother. I'd rather wallow with the pigs than go back to the father with you. Why? Because men love the darkness and will not come to the light, John's gospel says. What does the good elder brother do in that moment? A good elder brother just might throw you over his shoulder, kicking and screaming till you're all the way back home. For some of you, becoming a Christian might have felt like that. You were dead set against it, and your conversion felt like God arresting you while you were running the other way. Like Jonah, you were trying to get away, but you couldn't shake the pursuit of the elder brother coming after you. Like Saul of Tarsus, you were committed to a course of life, but were arrested mid-journey on the road to Damascus. For some of you, conversion may have felt like that, but for others, even though your heart's natural love was bent and corrupt, the first touch of the elder brother in that pig pen changed your heart. The light changed your loves. Instead of hating and resisting the light, your heart was melted by the love displayed in your elder brother coming to you. And your heart still melts every time you hear the Christmas story that this Christ came for you. This brother was born for you. He came to expose your heart and to rewire your heart. Like a master electrician, Jesus has come to rewire our hearts to be like God's heart. Loving what God loves as he loves it. And hating what God hates as he hates it. This is what holiness is. So that this last point is now possible. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Here's our fifth and final heading. Works wrought in love. Works wrought in love, verse 21. Because of God's gift of love, sending His Son on a mission of love, rewiring our misplaced loves, we are now in a completely new position. Our works, which could have never stood before God's judgment, are now of a different quality altogether. Our works, through faith in Christ, can now be genuinely pleasing to God, genuinely pleasing to the Father, rooted in Christ's work of love, our works are now wrought in love and wrought in God. It's like the prodigal has come home and is a completely new man, whereas before everything he did was to prove himself or to selfishly distinguish himself from his father. And his elder brother. But now that the elder brother has brought him back to the family, all his works have a new basis. They all flow from a new heart. He acts like one who has been redeemed. He doesn't have to prove himself or earn his family's acceptance because he realizes he was accepted when he had nothing to offer, when he was in a far country, in a pigsty, he was loved and accepted. He was loved and pursued when he resisted that love. Now that the prodigal has returned home with a changed heart and with new loves, all his work is different because it flows from a different heart. It's now done for different reasons. The redeemed man works out of gratitude, not trying to earn anything, But thankful for what God has done for him. He isn't working in order to be loved and accepted by the Father. Instead, his work flows from a joy and a confidence that he is loved and accepted by the Father already. If you're looking for an application of verse 21, can you think of a better occasion than Christmas? Christmas is about putting truth into practice. The light has come into the world. Christmas is about acknowledging and celebrating that truth. Christmas is a time to put into practice works wrought in God's love. In our every gift given, in our every family celebration, in our every conversation with that awkward uncle, we are putting on God's love on display. There are some people who'd rather embrace any excuse or take on any inconvenience than to spend an hour in conversation with certain family members at Christmas. Maybe that's you. But Chesterton would point out that this runs contrary to the very nature of Christmas. The nature of Christmas is love, reaching out to the unlovely. It is God's peace entering into our strife. It's about God's joy entering into our despair. In that awkward family moment this week, bring the true nature of Christmas to bear. Bring the nature of Christ to bear and pray that your works in that moment might be wrought in love. Just as Jesus' works have been wrought in love for you. Give a Christmas gift to that ungrateful person remembering that the light pursued you when you were evil and ungrateful. The elder brother left home at great expense to bring you back home. He was a very physical gift of love. And we can say, with Chesterton, to the Mary Baker Eddies of the world, a gift that can be seen and touched is the whole point. It's the whole point of Christmas. God's physical gift of Christ shows us just how much he loves us. So, the physical gifts you wrap tonight or unwrap tomorrow, see them all as just the dimmest reflections of the greatest gift that has come down from God on that first Christmas. A gift that forever displays to the world, his love. Father, as we go from this place, may we go from here into our Christmas gatherings with family, with friends, full of the love of God, full of the charity of heart that we see put on display in that first Christmas day you have given us the best of all possible gifts. May our every gift be given in love, in joy, as a dim reflection of your great gift. Father, work this love in us for your glory and for our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.